Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, I thought I'd talk a bit about internet search engines and how Google was able to sort of take the lead amongst a pack of competitors, most of which came out well before Google did. Now, these days, lots of people use Google as a word for web searching in general, even though the company does way more than web search and there are still plenty of competitors that are still active that are out there. I'm sure Microsoft would rather we all talk about binging the heck out of things, but that doesn't happen. I think we're now at the point where people will talk about Googling even if they're using a different search engine. So how did that happen? How did we get to that point? Well, to explain how we got there, it's a good idea to walk down memory lane. I mean, you know I love to do this. Every episode begins with a history lesson. And to really look at how the idea of search engines developed and what things were like in the early days of the public internet and the web. Now, first, the idea of search engines predates both of those concepts by quite some time, and it rose out of necessity. It kind of evolved out of older methods of indexing. So a predecessor to search engines are the various library classification systems. Uh, Three big ones are the Dewey Decimal System, uh, the Library of Congress System, and the Superintendent of Documents System. Uh, The first two of those designate books with call numbers according to subject matter. So you divide the books up based upon whatever subject they cover. This can get a little complicated. It is, and no pun intended, subjective, You have to determine where does the book best fit in the grand taxonomy of subjects. Uh, Meanwhile, the superintendent of documents system is totally different. It doesn't divide it up by subject. It divides up books by the issuing agency responsible for the publication of the work. So they just divide it up by where the book came from, not what the book covers. Whatever the system, the purpose is the same. It's to make it possible for someone to track down a specific work in an enormous collection of works or to figure out where to place a new work within an existing collection. By classifying each work and then designating the physical location for that piece, people can find stuff. Otherwise, you just have an enormous pile of books with no organizational system at all and finding anything would take ages. Now, someday, I'll have to do an episode about these systems in more detail to talk about how they were developed and how they've evolved over time because it's actually a pretty interesting story. But we're going to jump forward a bit. Not quite up to the computer age, however. Rather, we're going to jump forward to the 1940s. That's when a forward-thinking fellow named Vannevar Bush wrote an article for the Atlantic Monthly. The piece had the title, As We May Think, and it contains some fairly prescient ideas in it. Bush recognized that as we increase our knowledge, we were beginning to specialize in certain fields out of necessity, that you couldn't just be a general knowledge master. Eventually, you were starting to develop our our knowledge in different areas uh, so far that you had to specialize. You couldn't be an expert in everything. To get, get a really deep understanding about a particular field, such as physics or chemistry, we might dedicate all our resources to that pursuit as an individual. Meanwhile, there are other people who are exploring different subjects, like pure mathematics or cosmology or something like that. Now, this, Bush argued, presented a new challenge. How do we create a usable record of our discoveries, one that's easily navigable and remains relevant over time. While an older library classification system might encompass several categories, it couldn't get as granular as our knowledge was growing to be. For example, the Library of Congress classification system has 21 categories that you can use to group books together. But as our research and discoveries honed in on ever more precise slices of those categories, the system becomes less relevant. Because you've, you've got, you know, m- minor categories within those major categories. And so it gets harder to start classifying things. Bush said, we needed to have a record that could be continuously extended and easy to consult. But he went even further out than that. He said, to make it a really useful record, we need to structure it to respond to our queries in a way similar to how the human mind works. 
Bush argued that we think through associations. We associate ideas with each other, sometimes in pretty unusual ways, in ways that might seem intuitive to us, but on the very surface of it, there doesn't seem to be any relation between those ideas. And you may have experienced this where you're thinking about one thing and you just start to think about a different thing that doesn't seem to be related, and then you're able to relate the two. This is really human ingenuity. It's where innovation really takes off. Well, Bush said it would probably be impossible for us to create an artificial system that could replicate that tendency, but we could at the very least design something that acknowledges that human trait so it works better for us. So if we did that, if we decide to search for a record for a particular type of information, we might also see the opportunity to search for tangential data that is relevant to our needs. Uh, A good system would be able to anticipate that and serve up that information for us. So Bush proposed a hypothetical system called MEMEX, M-E-M-E-X, and that would use associative factors to organize information in a virtually limitless storage space. Again, this is hypothetical. It would be a system that one could reference and send a retrieval command to get the most relevant information related to whatever it was you were asking for, your query. Essentially, he was talking about a conceptual model that the internet attempts to realize. Now skip ahead to the 1960s. Then you've got a computer scientist named Jerry Salton. Uh, Jerry Salton taught at Cornell University, and he developed an indexing strategy using a vector space model. Now, this gets a bit mind-bendy for people who haven't worked with vector space models, but follow me here. Now, start with an imaginary virtual space, kind of analogous to the physical space we live in in our day-to-day lives. Now, in our reality, we can perceive three dimensions and we experience a fourth one, that of time. But we cannot directly perceive any more than that ourselves. So most of the time, we associate the physical world with three physical dimensions. Now, in the information retrieval method that Salton set up, he defined the number of dimensions within his virtual space by the number of terms in a retrieval request. So if your request included five terms, the vector space model would have five dimensions. Documents within the model would virtually appear as vectors within the space according to which of the search terms were present within those documents and how frequently they were present within the documents. Uh, The queries and the documents are both vectors uh, of the term counts. And just in case you're as rusty on your physics terms as I am, a vector is a quantity that has a magnitude and a direction. So your Terms have vectors, your documents have vectors, and the goal is to identify the documents that are most similar to the initial query in an effort to retrieve the most relevant results while leaving out anything that doesn't meet the criteria or doesn't meet a predetermined threshold of relevance. So you might say, I need to have X percentage match for the retrieval to actually come through, and anything that doesn't meet that threshold gets discarded. It's not not served to me. And that saves you time when you start sorting through the results to see if any of those actually represent the information you were actually looking for. Now, suffice it to say, this model really looks for the presence of specific terms, but not necessarily their use within the document, their context. So you could end up retrieving a document that technically contains all the terms you used in the search, but it has no real relevance to your actual needs. So that is... a a limitation of this model, but still, it was a pretty good starting point. So Salton's work was incredibly important. Another big thinker who helped shape the course of what would become the internet and the web is a guy named Ted Nelson, who in the 1960s proposed an idea he called Xanadu. And I'm not talking about the cheesy movie starring Olivia Newton-John about roller skating Greek muses, but As a side note, I really love that movie. No, Nelson's Xanadu was a hypothetical computer-based writing system that would have a means to link different documents within a global depository. So essentially, he was talking about hypertext links, which would allow users to navigate from document to document to relate documents together so that you could have a a collection of documents about the same sort of, of subject matter and make it very easy to reference different research. It would also allow document creators to add their work to a growing collection of documents about similar subjects. Now, while the web would incorporate many of Nelson's ideas, 
He has stated that the web falls far short of what Xanadu was meant to do. Still, those links would become very important for the web. Heck, I mean, you could argue the links are what make it a web in the first place. The World Wide Web is a series of documents published on servers that have connective tissue between them. That's the web that you navigate. So it would be crucial in Google's eventual success, as we'll see. Now, in the 1970s, the agency that would become DARPA, which at the time was just ARPA, funded the development of the ARPANET, which would be the predecessor to the Internet. Computer scientists worked on the rules that machines would have to follow in order to communicate with one another over a network. This was a non-trivial problem at the time because computers were dependent upon proprietary systems that were not compatible with computers from other manufacturers. So, in other words, they were talking in different languages, so you had to find a common means of communication between these different machines. Solving those problems laid the foundation for the internet that was to follow. Now, skipping ahead to the late 1980s, this is still before the web was a thing, but college students Alan Imtaj and Bill Helan recognized the need for a tool to search file databases effectively. They were part of a project uh, at the McGill University School of Computer Science to develop that kind of a tool. It would become known as Archie, and it was meant to ser search archives of files. The original version was pretty primitive. It would essentially just send an automated request to a file transfer protocol server, and it would just say, hey, give me a list of all the files that are stored on your server. That's it. Just give me a laundry list of all the files that are on there. And it was once a month it would send this request. And so really it was just a list of the documents that were available on that FTP server, not anything more you know, sophisticated than that. But it would grow to become a query search tool, allowing users to look for files containing specific terms in them or with specific titles. Other schools would develop similar search tools in the following years, naming them after characters from Archie Comics, like Veronica and Jughead. Now, this is despite the fact that Imtaj said he intended no association with Archie Comics at all. He chose the name Archie because it's archive, but without the V. But sometimes memes just take hold even if they're based off a misunderstanding. Also, both Veronica and Jughead search for files in the Gopher Index system, uh, a predecessor and alternative to the World Wide Web. I did an episode about Gopher a couple years ago, I think, so you can search the archives if you want to hear about that. Now, this leads us to 1991, when Tim Berners-Lee built and published the world's first web page. Berners-Lee had done some work with hypertext documents at CERN as a contractor in the early 80s. The goal then was to help researchers share information between each other as they were smashing particles against each other really, really hard. By 1990, Berners-Lee was thinking about pairing the hypertext capabilities with the internet to allow for an interconnected series of documents hosted on networked internet servers. And thus, the World Wide Web was born. It wouldn't take long for others to jump on the idea, and that meant it wouldn't be long before people needed a tool to search the growing collection of documents on the internet. And that kind of sets me up for the next section, which I will tackle in just a moment after we take this quick break. So, in the earliest days of the web, when calling it a web might have been a, a little generous, CERN maintained a list of web servers that hosted web pages. This was all part of the World Wide Web Virtual Library, or VLIB or sometimes www.vlib. This was the first index of web content, and it relied upon real-life human beings to build out the index as more web pages were publishing. They volunteered their time to build out the index. So this is not automated. People were actually doing this by hand, adding the, the, the names and the addresses to these different sites on this index. Next, we have Matthew Gray's World Wide Web Wanderer, now, this was a bot or an autonomous program on a network that can interact in some significant way with the information on the network. And we deal with bots all the time. Sometimes it's in the background and we humans don't really notice. And sometimes, like chatbots, it's very much in front of us. The bot that Matthew Gray created would navigate the World Wide Web to keep count of how many active servers there were in any network. 
It was essentially measuring the growth of the web over time by counting up these servers. As more servers came online, we learned that the World Wide Web was growing. Gray upgraded the bot to actually capture the URLs of web pages, because earlier it was just counting stuff. It wasn't actually making note of anything in particular. And so it got a little more uh, sophisticated. Gray built out a database of these captured URLs called Wandex. The bot would ping servers multiple times each day, and it actually became a problem. It was pinging so frequently. And a ping is just a quick message that essentially says, hey, are you there? And then it's waiting for a response of, yeah, I'm here. It's all good. But it was doing this so many times each day that it was actually starting to create lag on the internet. Of course, this is in the very, very early days. So whoopsie-daisy there. Now, toward the end of 1993, some early web search tools were starting to make their way to the general public. Though, keep in mind that in the very early days of the World Wide Web, the general public accessing web pages was really just a tiny fraction of the overall population. It's like college students, some early adopters, some folks with various government agencies, and a few companies, but not a whole lot. Uh, it was largely a mysterious thing. You know, this is when people were just starting to hear the terms of uh, World Wide Web and information superhighway because the internet had been around for a while, but most people didn't have any regular way to access it. So these tools could help you find stuff, but they weren't super sophisticated. There was the World Wide Web Worm, which would pull together lists of titles and URLs for web pages. Uh, there was Jump Station, which would pull down information about web pages' titles and header sections. So sort of like the title of the web page and a brief description of what the web page was supposed to be. But both of those tools were very simple, and they would present results in the order that they were found by the tools. So there was no ranking of the search results. It was all by by a first-come, first-serve kind of approach. So it might be that your uh, results all had whatever your query was in it, but the most relevant ones could be buried much further down the list because they didn't rank in any way. Then there was the RBSE Spider, which actually attempted to rank results by relevance, but all three of these were limited in what they could do, and often you needed to know what you were looking for exactly in order to get a hit. In other words, you couldn't just do a, a string of, of words. You certainly couldn't write in uh, natural language what your query was. So you might have to put in the actual title of a page in order to get the response back. So you would have to know what the page's title is, but you not you obviously don't know what the URL is or else you would just navigate to the page directly. You just type in the address in your browser's uh, address bar and go there. So it was kind of limited in its utility. Uh, if you were to do anything outside of the actual title of a page, you might not find any hits, even if such pages actually existed out there. Also in 1993, some Stanford undergraduates decided to take the work they had been doing on a project called Architect and develop a web-crawling search tool based off of that work. Architect was all about using statistical analysis of word relationships in an effort to kind of build a basic understanding of what the uh, the subject matter was. And that would then be able to help you create more relevant search results on queries. So you run a search request, and this tool would statistically analyze various uh, indexed pages in its database and return the results that appeared to be the most relevant. Um, it was an interesting approach. It was definitely one that was needed because it wasn't just listing the, the sites chronologically based on how they were uh, attained. But it would take about two years for this project to actually turn into something that the group could unveil. Uh, and when they did, they called the tool Excite. And uh, they held a commercial release for the product in 1995. But in between the founding and the release of Excite, we hit a banner year for early search engines, 1994. 1994 was the year that Webcrawler, Lycos, InfoSeek, and Yahoo all got their start. Now, with the case of Yahoo, the company was not relying on bots to crawl through web servers to index all the pages that the bots came across. Instead, 
Yahoo initially was relying on actual human beings to curate an index. So they were actually going to web pages, deciding whether or not those web pages were good enough to be listed on Yahoo on the various subjects that Yahoo was covering, and then they would be grouped together if they passed muster. Now, there are pros and cons to that approach. One of the pros is that because it is human curated, there was a much better possibility that the web pages on Yahoo's lists were good ones with good content. But the con side was that as the web grew and began growing at an even faster rate, it really limited Yahoo's usefulness. It would only be later that Yahoo would branch out into the web search in general. And even then, it relied very heavily on third parties for the actual search tools. They didn't uh, really dive into developing their own. They were more about uh, making deals with other search engines to power their search. In fact, that happened on and off throughout Yahoo's entire existence. But let's get back to Webcrawler, Lycos, and InfoSeek. Now, of those three, Webcrawler was the first to provide full-text search of web pages. So not just headers and titles. You could search terms, and if they appeared in the web page at all, then in theory, Webcrawler would be able to bring that back, as long as it was indexed in Webcrawler's index. Um, it was the work of a University of Washington student named Brian Pinkerton, and Pinkerton's web crawler built out this big index of pages, and Pinkerton started rather modestly. He first released a list of the top 25 websites on the web on March 15, 1994, and the following month he announced that the web crawler's index included 4,000 websites, and by June of 94, he made the index searchable for everyone. So again, this is just a, a slice of all the websites that were out there, but it was a decent enough slice to start off with. And the endeavor proved to be successful. Pinkerton received financial investments from a couple of big companies, and within a year, he had managed to support the service through advertising revenue, a model that other search engines would follow. So he was able to actually make money by serving up advertising on his search engine pages. By June 1995, AOL had become interested in Webcrawler and would purchase the company. Uh, AOL would later sell the company a little less than two years later to Excite, that company that I had mentioned earlier in this episode. I'll get back to them and to Webcrawler a bit later. But I will say that Webcrawler was my search engine of choice when I first started using the web in the mid-1990s. I was actually pretty slow to move over to that crazy Google thing that we're going to get to later in this episode. Lycos, meanwhile, started off as a project at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, Michael Malden headed up the project, and the name came from wolf spiders that have the scientific name Lycosidea. Uh, when Lycos became a company, Bob Davis took the helm to turn it into a revenue-generating business that would get its cash from advertising like Webcrawler, and it also was a success. And by the end of 1996, the Lycos Index was the largest web search index available on the web. It held more than 60 million documents in it. The service grew tremendously, as did the company, and the full story of Lycos is one I'll have to cover in another episode because it gets pretty bonkers. But for this episode, it's just important to note that it was another early search service that grew and became diversified. It tried to do lots of other stuff. Um... Steve Kirsch would be the guy behind InfoSeek. That one originally launched as a pay-for-use service. So it's an original revenue model wasn't advertising. It was you would pay to use it. Now, that only lasted about half a year, a little more than half a year before Kirsch dropped the fee and it became free to use. And by February 1995, the service became known as InfoSeek Search. Uh, and also 95... Netscape and InfoSeek negotiated a deal in which InfoSeek would become the default search engine in Netscape's web browser. So that really helped InfoSeek's penetration quite a bit in those days. Now, one thing InfoSeek incorporated in its service after a couple of years was the option to use Boolean operators. Now, these are a collection of simple words that can help you narrow down searches. The words include and, or, and not. So with an AND operator, you are narrowing your focus. So if you search for the terms Superman and movies, the results you get should be relevant to both of those terms. You should only get results that include information about Superman and movies. 
if you're looking for a specific Superman movie, hopefully those would be right in that list. Uh, some of them should have the information you're looking for. It may be that you still have to do some digging to find them because you're going to get all the web pages that have both Superman and movies inside of them. Now, you could make it more specific. You could say Superman and movies and Christopher Reeve. That would end up narrowing the results for those to look for uh, any pages that have all three of those terms inside of them. The Boolean operator or does the opposite. It broadens your search. Maybe you want to search for Batman or Superman. Then you should get results that have either or both Superman or Batman in them. Um, so you would get all the Superman results, all the Batman results. You'd probably also get all the Superman and Batman results. Uh, so you're, you're increasing the number that you receive. The not Boolean operator helps you eliminate options from search. So if you searched comic books, not Superman, you should get results about comic books that don't mention or include Superman in the web pages. So it should be discussions about comic books, but they're not Superman comic books, or at least Superman's name isn't appearing in the web page. Now, Boolean search is still a great tool to help you get the results you want, but as time has gone on, search has become much more sophisticated, so it's not really as necessary to become familiar with Boolean search. It's good to know how to use it, but it's not key because search has not only just grown more sophisticated, but grown more intrusive. Uh, a lot of searches today rely on information that various browsers and web pages are gathering about you. So they're using your past behavior as a predictive tool to help serve up relevant results. But that's a topic for a different podcast episode. I, I'll do another podcast episode about this at some point. Now, by 1998, InfoSeq had a search tool that allowed users to include different modifiers on search results to narrow down the return sites, which was becoming important because the web was growing enormously in the mid to late 90s and would only continue to do so. The Walt Disney Company took notice of InfoSeq and would purchase more than 40% of the company, effectively incorporating the business into the media empire ruled by the hand of the mouse. InfoSeq at that point had made several acquisitions of its own, including sites like ESPN.com and ABCNews.com, which then became part of Disney's media empire. And InfoSeq would get rolled into Disney's Go.com network of services and sites, and effectively, uh, eventually, after several years, it would disappear into that network of sites. InfoSeq would begin to offer up manually curated search results along with automated ones. Again, this was an effort to return the most relevant results. You'll see if you look at the history of search engines that a lot of them kind of experimented with this human-curated approach because that was a real issue, was that you would use these search engines and you would get a ton of results and only a few of them ever seemed to be even remotely connected to what you wanted. So... Putting humans in charge of that made it a little easier to do relevant results uh, because humans understand context. They understand when a site is actually about something versus when a site just mentions something offhand, but it's not really about that thing. Uh, you even saw this relatively recently. I remember uh, shortly after I started How Stuff Works, how the service Mahalo was kind of struggling. Uh, but it was also a human-curated search engine. And we're talking like 2007 when I was looking into that. Um, my friend Veronica Belmont used to work for that company. So uh, it was still something that people were trying even as late as the late 2000s era. Or by late 2000s, I mean the first decade of 2000. Anyway, InfoSeq uh, tried that out. And also one of the engineers from InfoSeq, uh, Li Yanhong, relocated to China and became a co-founder of a different search engine company called Baidu, B-A-I-D-U. That's a company that has become truly enormous, with assets approaching a value of $300 billion. That's actually more than what Google's parent company, Alphabet, has at its disposal. So you could argue Baidu won the search wars, but then Baidu is not widely known in the West. It's a very huge company over in Asia, but not, uh, not as well known here. Back to our search engine history. So 1995, 
Excite, the company I talked about earlier, finally debuts, and it did well. In fact, it did so well that it would end up purchasing Webcrawler in 96. But by 99, its numbers were starting to decline thanks to you-know-who, that rhymes with schmoogle, and it merged with a company called athome.com, the at symbol, home.com. It was a deal that was worth nearly $7 billion. But that deal did not ultimately work out. The merged company would file for bankruptcy in 2001, one of the many victims of the dot-com bubble bursting. Um, that was at least one of the, the big contributing factors to that. Uh, the company also just had a lot of debt even heading into 2000, 2001. So that was kind of the, the nail in the coffin. Now, Infospace, which once upon a time owned what would become Stuff Media, so Technically, I was an Infospace employee for a short while, purchased Excite's assets and domain names. And so uh, Webcrawler and, and uh, uh, Excite all became wrapped up with Infospace's offerings. And uh, yeah, they use, technically, it's still part of that. You can still use some of that, although um, it's a much different tool than what it used to be. Also in 1995, AltaVista emerged from the Western Research Laboratory at the Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC. AltaVista allowed for natural language queries, meaning you could type in a query similar to how you would ask a person to look for something for you. You didn't have to focus on asking in a way that would only make sense to a machine. This is that barrier of entry we often see with technology, where we have to adjust our behavior so that whatever technology we're working with understands, quote-unquote, what we want from it. Um, AltaVista was trying to reverse that, to make the technology attempt to understand what we want, rather than making us work so that the technology can understand us. The researchers who designed it had to do a full-scale web crawl uh, in August 1995. It indexed 10 million pages in that web crawl, and this was compelling enough to launch as a spin-off company. By 1996, AltaVista was powering search results for Yahoo. So, like I mentioned earlier, where Yahoo would use other uh, companies to, to run their web search, AltaVista was one of those. But also at that time, Compaq would acquire DEC, which in turn owned AltaVista. And Compaq turned AltaVista into more of a portal service than, than a search engine, a true search engine, which put it more in direct competition with Yahoo!, and AltaVista's numbers went into decline, possibly because of that shift to a portal service rather than as a more straightforward search tool. Now, we're not quite done covering all the major players in the space before Google came on board. I'm going to cover a couple more right after we take this quick break. Okay. So in addition to the services I've already mentioned, there were a couple more. There was Inktomi, that's a project that was headed by Eric Brewer and Paul Gautier. Uh, they founded Inktomi in 1996. The two of them had been working on a parallel processing computing project for DARPA when they came up with this approach to search. And rather than launching a dedicated search tool of their own, they said, oh, well, we offer to use our technology to power other people's search engines. So essentially, you, you put up the front and we'll power the back end. And one of those was uh, uh, run by a company called Hotwired, and they introduced a search tool called Hotbot. Inktomi worked largely as sort of a business-to-business -business entity, growing far beyond a search engine company. But the dot-com crash of 2001 also hit Inktomi really hard, and a couple of years later, it was swept up by Yahoo. So you see, you see a lot of these companies end up kind of getting gulped up by each other. Now, the last of our pre-Google search engines that I'm going to talk about is Ask Jeeves. Later on, it was just known as Ask. It launched in 1997, having been developed by David Worthen and Garrett Gruner. And like some of the other services I mentioned in this episode, it would present curated lists that were created by sort of an editorial board, along with uh, some paid listings. So if you're a company that wanted your website to be listed alongside, quote unquote, legitimate <laughs> research retur or, or returns, rather, uh, you could pony up the cash, 
and have your website put on that list. Uh, that still happens today on search engines. It happens today on Google, where you'll see the first couple of results tend to be ones that say, you know, ad at the end of it. Google has to label them as ads, not as just natural uh, search results based on your query. Though sometimes those ads actually are the things you're looking for. So it's not always a bad thing, but it is good to just pay attention. So eventually, Ask would develop its own search engine technology that would automate things. They stopped relying exclusively on people curating lists. And Ask would go on to acquire Excite. So you saw, you know, Excite bought Webcrawler. Well, Ask would later on buy Excite. So you see there's a lot of shuffling with these companies. And then came Google, which had started as a research project at Stanford. Larry Page and Sergey Brin had developed the tool, and they were running it out of a garage for a little while. They had built a search tool they originally called Backrub, and their goal was to create a search engine that could index the web and then present the most relevant results to any query. But how would you do that? Well, the actual answer, if we're being totally transparent, is kind of like Coke's secret formula, in that we know, in general, what has to go into it, but we don't know the specifics that would allow us to replicate the results precisely. The algorithm uh, that Google uses is peculiar to Google, and they also change it a lot. They tweak it. So even if we did learn how it used to work, it doesn't work that way anymore. So Brennan Page would refer to this process as page rank, and here's how it worked from a theoretical standpoint. So first, you index the web. So you need to get a kind of a, 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 a complete look at all the websites that are available out there on the web, an inventory, if you will, of all the web. To do this, you send out bots to index all the pages that are listed on the web that you can find. Um, you can actually, in the HTML of a web page, you can designate it so that it will instruct bots to ignore the page and not index it. So... You can do that and it won't show up on any search result page because the bot will see that message and will just move on. Uh, this is useful if you want a page that only people who know about it can navigate to it and you don't want folks just stumbling on it through search. So that is an option. So for all the pages that are discoverable, the bots will crawl through. They follow all the links. They try and index out the web and get a, as good a snapshot of what the World Wide Web is as is possible. Now these bots aren't just looking for the location of the web pages, like what server those web pages are stored on, or even get just a full understanding of what the text is inside those pages so that when you do a search query and you put your search terms in, they can return the pages that have those search terms. They're also looking for links, both going into the page and coming from the page to go elsewhere. And the links would become a really important part of page rank. So here's the basic idea. Bren and Page figured out that if a web page about a given subject is really good, other pages tend to link to it. Uh, they do so because they recognize the quality, and that helps boost the page's uh, position in search results. So let's use an example to kind of understand this. Let's say you are one of these early web developers in the late 1990s, and you're also a big music fan, so you decide to create a blog that's completely focused on the music industry. And you cover the news in the industry, you post reviews of albums that you've listened to, maybe you even do some interviews with people who are in the industry. And as you write this blog, other people take notice. Some of them also have a web presence and cover the industry, and they really dig your stuff. So they link to your page. They say, oh, there's a really cool music industry blog, it's being run by this person over here, follow this link to go check it out. Google's bots would register that. They would see that those links were out there pointing to your page. And the more sites that link back to your blog, the higher your blog would rank in search results. So if someone searched music industry news or something along those lines, there's a chance that your blog would pop up fairly high in results. Now, how high would be dependent on something other than just how many pages are linking to you? Uh, that's one factor that matters a lot, the number of sites linking to your page. But the other one is how trustworthy those linking sites were. So let's consider two scenarios. In our first scenario, you've got your music blog. 
and you've got a lot of sites that are linking to your page, but they're all small-time sites. Like some are personal sites run by people who are interested in music, but they don't really have any presence in the industry, and no one's really linking to their page, so they're not ranked super high in Google's estimation. Some of them might be even worse than that. Some of them might be link farms. Link farms, you don't really see them that much these days, but in the 90s, they were everywhere. They only existed to link to other pages, and it was in an effort to boost those other pages' rankings in search. So if you navigate it to one, let's say you do a search for a term and you click on the link, you end up looking at a bunch of completely disconnected uh, titles and URLs, and that's it. There's no other content on the page. It's just a listing of links to different sites with no rhyme or reason to them. Those would also be very low in Google's trustworthiness, according to its algorithm, because obviously the only reason they're existing is to try and game the system, to try and say, well, let's just add a lot more links to the, this page, and that will boost its, its relevance. So if that were the case, if most of the links going to your page were either from Small Potatoes websites or they were from link farms, your page rank wouldn't be boosted very high. Uh, it might be higher than it would be if there were no links going to your page at all, but it's not a huge help. Now let's consider scenario two. Let's say your blog only has a few sites linking to it, a couple dozen maybe, but those sites are doozies. Maybe they include record labels that are in the music industry. Maybe it's other outlets that cover music news. Maybe it includes some news websites that use your blog as a source for stories. Now, those sites have a much higher level of trustworthiness for Google. And so, or, you know, in Google's estimation, I should say. And those links matter more. So maybe in scenario one, you have a thousand tiny sites linking to you. And scenario two, you just have a couple of dozen of the really big sites linking to you. PageRank would favor scenario two over scenario one, reasoning that if your blog is good enough to get the attention and support of those trusted entities, it must be a really good resource. And so your site would get boosted in search results. Now, that helped address a troublesome trend with search. I mentioned link farms. That was one problem. So any search engine that looked at uh, backlinking uh, could be fooled through link farms that were just there to, to boost that number. In the 90s, it wasn't unusual to encounter that. I can't tell you how many times it happened to me when I was doing a search for, you know, a fairly obscure type of topic, and I just would come across a link farm to all sorts of stuff that was, most of which was totally not relevant to what I wanted. Um, those were really frustrating. Uh, and so they, that was one thing that people would do to try and game the system. Uh, but another was an equally annoying tactic. Uh, people wanted folks to come to their web pages really badly. There were, in the old, old days, there were even web page counters. A little, it looked like a little digit counter that would tell you how many people had been to that website. And it became kind of a badge of honor among early web developers if that number were particularly high because it showed that a lot of people were visiting your site. And it was kind of a prestige thing. Um, it also could mean money, because if you were using web advertising to support your, your web site, and that number was getting really, really high, it meant you had more page views. And more page views would mean more cash from the advertisers. So there was an actual you know, financial reason to try and get more people to come to your web page. And not everybody played fair and square. Sometimes web developers would include an incredibly long list of popular search terms on the web page. Uh, usually it would be at the very bottom of the web page in tiny font. And so that's the only place where your search terms would show up. Now, the rest of the web page would be about something entirely different. And then you do a search on the web page for the terms you were looking for. And it turns out they're just in this list of random or seemingly random search terms. It was really the most popular search terms that people could come across. And they were just dumping them all at the bottom of their web pages. And that way their web page would pop up in all these sorts of searches. And people would end up going to their web page without knowing that it wasn't really about what they were hoping for. That was really frustrating for a lot of people, including myself. 
Because, you know, you're obviously you're searching for something because you want to get that content, but then you end up going to a web page that's not about that at all. It's not a good experience. So it was a terrible way to have people come to your web page. However, if your goal was just to get those views so that you could get that ad money, people were willing to do it. Um, I Maybe it was a successful strategy for people who were maybe running an online store, but I can't imagine it would be work too well. I mean, if I'm looking for information about quantum mechanics and I end up being dumped in some store that's selling baseball caps that have nothing to do with anything, uh, I'm probably just going to be mad. But anyway, that was one of the other approaches people were taking was trying to uh, include this text. Sometimes they would even hide it. They would have a big section of the web page where the font had the same color as the background text. So you couldn't see it just when you're reading through the web page, but it could be read by bots as they're crawling through all this material. Uh, so search engine developers got into kind of a seesaw battle with web developers to try and get around these tricks. Uh, one of the things they started to do, and Google was one of them, was focus on the text in the actual body of the document itself and then ignore information that might be in the headers or footers, which was typically where people were putting these uh, laundry lists of, of popular search terms. So Google got around that by saying, okay, well, we're no longer worried about the text that's in the header or the footer. We're just concentrating on what's in the body of the page. And Google's approach really improved upon relevance. The search results were just better than most of the competitors. You know, you, you were more likely to come across something, the stuff that, you know, represented what you wanted. And so Google was able to tap into advertising revenue because they were able to really uh, give people what they wanted. Advertisers wanted to be included with that. And Google began listing ad-supported results with the top returns for queries. So it meant that, you know, the stuff that people most wanted to see, you would get ads served right with that. Uh, it was a very attractive proposition. And it positioned the company well enough to survive the dot-com bubble burst of 2000, 2001. And many of its competitors either merged with other companies, as I mentioned, or they completely went under. But Google remained around and then was able to actually seriously grow in the 2000s. Uh, there were a couple of discussions with other companies early on, including Excite, that could have led to Google getting acquired, but none of that came to fruition, and Google remained its own company and continued to build on its success. And Google would evolve its algorithm, trying to crack the nut of deciphering the meaning of text inside web pages. So not just, here are the web pages that include the terms that you search for, but here are the ones that include it in the way that you meant including uh, improving it so that it can recognize natural language and not just, you know, lists of, of search terms. Pairing that with the page rank kind of approach would give Google the information it needed to really rank its results, and it necessitated the search engine optimization strategy. That, that became a whole new industry. Ranking well in search was a really good way to get serious internet traffic to a site, People made entire careers out of figuring out the best way to rank well in search, which honestly mostly involves creating a compelling and relevant web page or website that makes people want to link to it. Um, it's easier said than done. It's it, That was the best way to rank well within Google's search. Uh, occasionally, Google would tweak things so that your site, if it was particularly good, would just rise to the top because Google recognized that. They might weight your site more heavily than other sites. Um, but it also led to companies learning the hard lesson that depending upon search traffic is a risky thing to do. Every time Google changes its search algorithm, it affects search rankings. So you might be doing really well for years, and then suddenly you see a massive drop-off in visitor numbers because Google changed its algorithm and your page no longer ranks as well in search results as it used to. So in a future episode, I plan on getting some SEO experts on the show and have them talk about the challenges of developing a good strategy to rank well in search and what other strategies people might consider if they want to promote their traffic uh, to uh, sites and services. Uh, you know, it's it's tricky stuff because, again, it might work great today and then tomorrow it might not work at all. So 
there, there's a real strong push among web developers to try and find alternatives to search engine traffic being your, your main way of getting people into your website. Um, also, if people are just searching for content and then popping over to your site uh, and they read one page that is relevant to whatever their search engine uh, query was, they're not likely to stick around unless they go down sort of the Wikipedia rabbit hole. Uh, they're more likely to bounce. And this was a problem we saw at the How Stuff Works website all the time is that we could get great search engine traffic. People were looking for specific answers to questions and we had articles that answered those questions. So people would come and read those articles. Now, what would be ideal for us is that people say, this is a great site. I want to read more articles. Let's just see what's here. But the reality was most people would come in, read whatever they wanted, and then leave. Um, they wouldn't stick around to read other stuff. And, and it, it was a real challenge. One of the things that we always tried to do was figure out how to create a site that was a destination all of its own, that you're not going there because a search engine told you to, you're going there because you love the site and you want to read more of the stuff on there. Um, that was always our goal. It was always very, very challenging because there's a ton of websites out there and there's a ton of really great content. So making sure that yours can stand up to everybody else's uh, is a heck of a challenge. It's a hard thing to do. I think the site does a great job of it, um, but it was one of those things that we were always striving toward. Now, in the end, Google won out because it had not grown too large before the bubble burst, so it hadn't spread its assets out too thin. It wasn't in incredible amounts of debt, so it was able to weather that storm and then was able to build on its success. And it had developed a search engine tool that people felt returned the best results, and they put a ton of trust in it. Uh, ultimately, Google would become this enormous company that would be able to gather huge amounts of data from its users and put that to use as well. And that made it a very valuable uh, resource for advertisers. And that's kind of how Google won the search engine war. Now, we'll talk about other stuff related to search engines in the future, but our next episode is going to be about something totally different. Um, and I'm just doing a few one-off episodes because after doing that arc of seven episodes about the uh, media and its relationship to us and and technology, uh, I felt like we kind of needed to, to do some one-offs. So uh, the next one's going to be another entertainment-related podcast, but it'll be another one-off. If you guys have suggestions for future topics I should tackle, why not uh, send me an email? Address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or hop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You will find the archive of all of our shows there. You'll find links to our social media sites. You'll find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.